You're listening to the Collateral Damage Podcast with Michael Wilson and Maureen Kavanaugh. On our podcast, we will be discussing the collateral damage caused by addiction, which is currently impacting countless individuals, families, and communities nationwide. You can listen to previous and future episodes on your favorite listening platforms, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, and many others. You can also help us reach other listeners by leaving a comment, sharing on social media, leaving a review, or you can subscribe to our YouTube channel and watch videos of all previous and future episodes of our podcast. We hope that you enjoy this episode, but first, here's a quick word from our sponsors. <laughs> you know, I think the language, the language around substance abuse is something that, you know. Substance use. I'm substance use, I'm sorry. Substance, or misuse. Substance misuse, substance abuse. <laughs> it's, it's starting to get confusing. And I no, think, that, I know. Um, you know, the word disease, the word addiction um i think that we we have like this now war on the language right you know there was the war on drugs now there's a war on the language the war on stigma which i'm a big fan of i don't like stigmatizing people or shaming people but you know i think the the language that we use is it's just starting to confuse me um you know medication assisted treatment to medication assisted recovery to medication supported recovery i don't even know which acronym to use anymore and uh you know all i know is that people are sick People are dying, and I really like the idea of having the focus on the part of this that matters, which is how to get them well. Um, you know, and I don't know. I mean, that's just my feeling. It's the the, the language is changing, and I don't know if that's helping. You know, I worked on the uh, addictionary with um, John Kelly from MGH and uh, a whole bunch of people from Facing Addiction, mm-hmm. and um, we very carefully went through, um, you know, like the current typical phrasing that things that people said Mm -hmm. and tried to make it less about um, uh, making the person the disease, you know, separating who this person is and that they are a person from the disease. And I think that that was important work. And I think that it's, I I do think it's important, but I also am starting to believe that we've come too much. An overcorrection. An overcorrection. Yeah. I don't disagree. And it's that beautiful quote that I always forget. <clears throat> and I just had to, had to ask Andrew Berkey um, to, to write it for me again. But it's don't settle for the soft bigotry of low expectations. The soft bigotry of low expectations. I like so that. when you start softening this language too much, mm-hmm. I think that that's what you're getting. And I, I, I know that if you look back in time, there's always you know people that go to the extreme. Mm-hmm. And then there's people that you know, that are just out of touch with, with, you know, any kind of kindness or empathy or anything. So right. you bring those two people together somewhere in the middle. There's the, or maybe even it's, maybe it's over this way even, mm-hmm. but it's not over all the way there. It's not the polar that, extremes of either side. You know what I mean? Cause it is, right. you've got the, you've got the old school language of, you know, uh, uh, AA and stuff, you know, the stuff I was brought up in my recovery. And then you've right. got the, the, the softer language of, you know, because of the overdose epidemic and all the lives lost, people are trying to soften what we talk about and trying to make it sound more uh, inviting, which I think mm-hmm. is this, this article that we were talking about earlier, This, uh, uh, which is the, the message that addiction is a disease makes substance users likely to, uh, less likely to seek help. So it's been, a, it's been called a disease for a very long time. You know, the disease model of addiction with AA, which is what we use to help us understand what's wrong with us, to help us learn that we can get well. That's when it's used correctly as the disease model, 
uh, as a part of a recovery plan. It's, it's used to help us understand that we're sick, but also that we can get well, right? But don't you think that, you know, harm reduction, even at its extreme, mm-hmm. is, is better when someone is just totally lost and incapable of getting to even close to where you're, what you're talking about, the kind of recovery you're talking about. Of course, yeah. So, you know, I mean, I'm talking, you know, like safe use, safe, safe injection sites, those, those, what was it, what was that, art, the other article about, about somebody who said they were in recovery because they were only down to what? Ten, $10 of heroin $10. a day. So this is the, uh, this was in Filter Mag, uh, filtermag.org, which is, I chose functional heroin use. Here's how it worked for me. And this is an article about a 19 year old woman who um, has decided that she has tried all of the other uh, medication-assisted treatments that were available. Uh, all of them at 19 she tried. And well, that's, she, that's what the article okay. Yeah, the article okay. suggests that she has, um, you know, she's tried the anonymous meetings, which often felt like an excuse to tell war stories and just gave her cravings. She's too scientifically minded to believe in a higher power and that she often fought with her so-called sponsor. I wonder what they thought about Um, She said that uh, Narcotics Anonymous was merely a place to debate religion-related theories, not a cure or something useful. Suboxone took away my ability to feel joy. Subutex kept me from sleeping for nights on end. And as for methadone, dot, 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 well, I couldn't wake up in time for any of the nearby clinics, which, for those of you that don't know, clinics are open on average between 6 and 10 every morning of the week and provide many accommodations as far as traveling and stuff like that, so... And then it was uh, none of the mainstream methods worked uh, for more than a few weeks or months. And she spent too much time moping, sobbing, hysterically, missing dope. And ultimately, the I cool- think that's called withdrawal, isn't it? It is. It's actually an, a form of addiction is that you have this thing and you obsess over it. and You're not willing to try anything else to get over it. And she says, yeah. opioids made me truly happy for the first time in my life, which is what she settled on and just decided that it was easier to use $10 worth of heroin a day budgeted into her week or her month or whatnot and that uh, at 19 apparently what she's suggesting is that she found something none of us figured out which is that she's going to try to manage her heroin use which i i don't know what to say about that because i think everyone that's ever done heroin has tried to manage the heroin use uh to some extent and try to live a normal life and this article uh she identifies herself as a person in recovery even still using ten dollars worth of heroin a day seven days a week I don't know. I don't know what that means. So that's just, I mean, that's my own confusion as somebody in recovery. So yes, but to your point, you know, I think we can't help the people that aren't alive. Um, You know, so if people are dying from this, then I can't fault her for for taking that approach. And I hope that she stays alive long enough uh, to get help eventually, you know, and find a better way than to just, you know, like you said, what's the, uh, uh, what was that quote again from Andrew? You think I could remember something from like two minutes ago, but I feel a little bit better since you can't remember either. Um, Don't settle for the soft bigotry of low expectations. Low expectations, right. So, you know, what she's experiencing sounds to me like the good enough life. You know, I've settled on the fact that I can't feel good with anything else. So rather than going through all the work of, you know, maintaining abstinence that she's just settled on, opioids and opiates make her feel better than anything else. And that's just the way it is for her. But, you know, uh, this other- is a, I mean, the, the thing that I find really dangerous and upsetting about that is mm. this is a street drug. 
Correct. Yes. It's not like I've decided that I'm in so much pain, I'm going to have to just stay on an opioid for the rest of my life, which would be unfortunate. And But it's a prescription opioid and it's coming from a pharmacy, which is mm. not to say that you can't abuse it and, and store it and it becomes dangerous. But if you really if it really was, which I don't believe, mm. monitored and she was going to only take a certain amount and she was going to take a certain amount each time, then, I mean, that would be the soft bigotry of low expectations. But this is dangerous. This is, and I think it's dangerous to have written that. And It's a dangerous this, message for yes, people to hear. Yes, I think hear. it's a dangerous message and, and that you can manage <clears throat> a street drug when you really don't know what you're getting. Well, yeah. I mean, she has to buy it illegally every week. She has to buy it in bulk so that she can save money. I mean, it's not, it's, it's not ideal. Right. And it's definitely not, again, in my opinion, it's not recovery based on, you know, what I'm comparing my recovery to. So if I look at my recovery, my recovery was a journey toward abstinence. I, I mean, that's just my recovery. So if compared to that, I, I couldn't, couldn't imagine how this is called recovery is being on heroin, uh, uh, $10 worth of heroin every day. Uh, and just accepting that, settling for that. Like that's can you it. can you accept that not everybody can get to where you are? Absolutely, yeah. Okay. And that there's different versions of recovery. And I think mm -hmm. that's probably the piece that that I struggle with the most is to just use that word and assume that it means whatever you want it to mean. I, I don't agree with that. You know, I yeah. think there are different levels of recovery. There are different versions of recovery. There are different versions of like in the dictionary. I believe that there's at least five different versions of abstinence, right? And, you know, I think that giving those different levels of abstinence a name is important because abstinence can't be said for all of them, right? I, I think there's different levels, you know what I mean? There's temporary, there's permanent, there's a bunch of different versions of abstinence. And I think that there are a bunch of different versions of recovery. And we're not talking about them as different versions. We're just lumping them in. And for all those people that put in hard work and achieved abstinence, we're suggesting that their recovery is just the same. It's just recovery. And I don't know if I agree with that. I think that there are different versions. I, 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 you know, I would hesitate to say one that it's better or worse. So if you're a person that can't get to a completely drug-free life and any mm. any drugs at all, right? I wouldn't say that that may be worse because what about psychiatric drugs? I mean, are you talking about drugs you're abusing, or are you saying that you know you can't if you're on a on a psychiatric medication, you're technically not sober? So I tend to leave out psychiatric medications in this conversation because more often than not, we're talking about, you know, replacing a drug or using a medication to assist you until you can, until you can get well. I mean, if we're talking about medication assisted treatment or medication assisted recovery or medication supported recovery, whichever one it is at this point, what we're talking about is a medication that's used to help you accomplish a goal. Sometimes I just don't know what that goal is anymore. You know, I don't know if that goal is to get well or if it's just to always take that medication because it's like Dayquil and it gets rid of the symptoms, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, and I, I, again, I'm not saying that somebody else can't just say, well, that's my recovery because they can. There's a lot of people who are on it and they're well and they've got their lives back. They're working. They've got their family back. They're not using street drugs. They're not dying. And that's great. That is, a, that is great because nobody could help them if they didn't get to that point, you know, and they were probably hopeless and could have died without that. But I do believe that recovery is about what you do once you're stabilized, once you're no longer causing yourself harm, there should be another process put in place. And there are too many, too many people that just once the symptoms are gone, they don't do the work to get well, whatever that is. But you don't think that you don't feel that same way about psychiatric medication. 
I feel like it could be used the same way, but no, I don't feel the same way. I mean, sometimes psychiatric medication is beneficial to help people stabilize and, you know, without it, they wouldn't be able to participate in a recovery plan. You know, like we have a men's 12 step house and some of the guys that come through, if their psychiatric issues or mental health issues weren't uh, addressed or they weren't stabilized, they couldn't possibly do the writing and the step work and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, but we obviously can't have people in there still using or still psychically connected to opioids. So we don't allow people on certain medications. Yeah, I I guess. Which is frowned upon now. Right. It's true. It's true. I think that, um, I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit, I think, on the, on the other side of that. I think if somebody's, somebody is unable to get to the point where they're not on any medication at all, mm-hmm. but they're having a happy, productive life, I'm okay with that. I don't think that that's, yeah. you know, I, I don't have a problem with that. No, I don't think that I would... Uh... I would persecute or judge. And I'd, I mean, if somebody met with me and they were like, hey, listen, I'm on to box and I've been on it for years and I'm in recovery. I wouldn't judge them. I would congratulate them. That's fantastic. Yeah. You know? I mean, I was on Suboxone for years and I, I personally didn't consider myself in recovery because I still felt like I had to take something every day to keep the wave of withdrawal away. Really? I still felt connected to my doctor. Or I still felt like if that dude went on vacation or died, I was screwed. Um, because that meant I couldn't get to my medication or, and, and I was going to be sick again. You know, like I had that in my head, the fear of being sick, the fear of withdrawal just stayed with me every day. And so I didn't feel well while I was on it, but that's me. I wanted mm-hmm. something more for myself. I wasn't settling. Um, I wanted to get well and I was willing to do whatever it took to get there. And I had friends around me that were motivating me to do it. And thank God they were there. And thank God they didn't just settle. And thank God the people around me were willing to push me and help me get well because I have what I have today. Yeah. Had they just been like, no, this is great. You have, you know, it's the equivalent. You're good. I probably would still be on it. Yeah. I wasn't happy, you know, on the inside. I wasn't happy, Uh, but that's my journey. And I know that other people have a different experience. So I I couldn't judge, but I do have my own personal experience to share just like they do. Yeah. And I, you know, it's, of course it's valid and it's, but it's, as long as we're not, and I think that that's where the, all the language comes in, as long as we're not making it less. Right. It may be, it may have been personally less for you mm-hmm. if anything short of what you have right now, right. but, um, it, other people may not feel like that. I just keep talking about psychiatric medication. Cause I, I know that, you know, there's some people that if they stop taking their medication, mm-hmm. their whole life goes down the tubes. Of course. So, and they may have done an enormous amount of work on themselves, mm-hmm. but they have a chemical imbalance and they're not able to stop taking their medication. <clears throat> I think some people are comparing MAT to the same thing that it may, mm-hmm. it may require a maintenance dose to keep someone stabilized in order for them to get well. And their version of well is just, you know, it's not that it's not as good as mine. It's just different than mine. You know, I think we're talking about two different things, but you know, <coughs> right. maybe not. I don't know. Maybe they can, if, if they can use medication and create a quality of life that's acceptable to them, I can't judge them for that. And I never would, but I don't know. Uh, even in this conversation, I'm finding myself just still thoroughly confused. You know, this is a, this is a, this is a new thing that, you know, for years it's been the best way to get well. And almost everyone that I know, I think about 10 people that I know that got well, all 10 of them got well using the steps and they're abstinent. I think of another 10 people and all 10 of them got well and used the steps and are abstinent. You know, all the people that I know, and maybe I just don't know enough people that have used the other stuff, but all the people mm-hmm. I know, the people in this industry, the people that work in this field, you know, the people that I meet at treatment programs, 
all the people that I know that are out there speaking publicly, the majority of them did exactly the same thing that I did. It works. Well, it gets do people you well. Do you think that there's a lot of people out there that are on medic medically assisted um, recovery treatment um, that are just not speaking up because of the stigma of speaking up? Absolutely. Yeah. So and I, I think, think there's, yeah. there's some confusion about what the social supports are. So for instance, there's a lot of people, um, you know, going to the uh, clinics for the MAT or MAR and, um, you know, they're, they're getting the medication, but then they're being advised to go to AA and NA, which is an abstinence-based program, a support group. And it's really hard to go there and be honest about a medication that is not, it's not accepted there. And then I feel like there's a movement out there complaining that the AA and NA community is not open to the medication, nor should they be. I think that you should have a, a group for you and they've started them. There are, uh, um, MARA groups, Medication Assisted Recovery Anonymous. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I think that that's great for people who are on the medication to get in rooms with other people on the medication and not feel guilty and shame <laughs> about it and like get some pride in their recovery. I would love to hear success stories about people using MAT and, and see them talking publicly about it. But I, I fear that they're not comfortable enough, you know, and, uh, well, my, my daughter and I were just on uh, the Boston Herald um, podcast right. speaking yeah. a, a lot about Vivitrol. Mm -hmm. Which so is a great which, medication. Which I she's think. still on. Yeah, yeah. So, And that's and, great. That's, a, that's like, the, in my opinion, the best of the three. If I, 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 I personally think so, too. Right. But um, I, um, I mean, she's, she's out there talking about it. And hopefully that will happen, that, mm -hmm. men, that more people will come forward and start talking about what worked for mm -hmm. them and um and then you know there will be people out there and and groups right. and you know and i understand i mean if you need to go to a meeting mm -hmm. there may be those meetings around in big sure. cities and they're not around know, here they're not no. around here no. so i mean you're so you're going to wind up in an na or an a meeting or you're going to wind up sitting home alone and or, isolation or recovery. does right my yeah. recovery is a good alternative you know they're beha more behavioral therapy focused and they don't it doesn't matter if you're abstinent. It doesn't matter if you're on medication. That's a very open group. I think there's a lot of smart recovery meetings, but it just confuses me that there's not more, you know, all the money is being diverted toward MAT. Excuse me. Um, all the money is being diverted toward MAT. And in, in doing so, I'm shocked that there's not more MAT specific support groups. Well, like, why aren't there support groups for everybody on Suboxone to go and talk to everybody on Suboxone and hear about how people on Suboxone are handling Suboxone? And, you know, like, why isn't there, why aren't there groups specifically for these folks facilitated by the people giving out the medication to help them understand what it's going to be like on it, what their thoughts are around getting off of it, success stories of people who've changed their lives while on it, and success stories about people who've changed their lives by coming off of it. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? And somebody yeah. could get on the clinic and then go to groups and meetings specific to them, surrounded by other people using the same medication, talking about the benefits, the pros and cons, weighing it out and deciding for themselves if it makes it, if it's a fit instead of trying to, you know, put that square peg in a round hole, uh, hole and have them going to abstinence-based meetings, feeling guilty and shameful for what they're doing and not being able to be proud of it. Right. right? And there would be no trouble making those meetings because god knows this clinic's popping up everywhere right listen i've actually tried to motivate a few of my clients to just go out and be that you know be that agent of change i'm like you're on this medication go 
start a group. You know right. what I mean? Tell your clinic that you want them to start a group. Do anything other than- the This is the responsibility, I think, of the clinics too. They need to start doing stuff like this because this is, this is what I worry about with um, some forms of medically assisted treatment. It's still uh, something that, you know, it's still an opioid, right? So mm -hmm. you, it's, not a, it's not a cure. Correct. It's not meant to be a cure. If somebody winds up staying on it because they can't come off of it safely- Mm -hmm. And they they don't have um, whatever, you know, whether it's they, they, they're not able to, for whatever reason, they're not able to not use if they're mm -hmm. not on the medication. Right. Um, I think that it, it's a responsibility of the clinics to, to form these groups, to make sure that people are getting other help. And that worries me because I, I see a lot of people going off and getting their prescription and not doing anything else. Well, that I guess worries that's, me. That's medication-assisted recovery. I like the idea of medication-assisted treatment, the original statement, because it is still treatment. You're receiving treatment. The whole idea is that you take this medication in conjunction with either therapeutic services or social supports. I don't know why that would ever change because it's, re it's necessary in order for people to make forward progress and recover um, that there are added elements. And clinics. you can't even really decide about whether, that's whether this works or whether it doesn't work or whether you want to be completely abstinent if you haven't gone through that process and because talk to then other you, people, right? Right. That's the whole other thing is talk to other people, peers, right? If you're just taking the medication and you're sitting at home and you're hoping for the best and you don't have things like, I mean, I'm, you know, there's, there's Facebook support groups where, you know, you can join and you can actually read through and see the experiences and watch the struggles and watch the pros and cons of people who are on this medication. But not everybody knows that those exist. Not everybody's socially capable uh, on the internet, but, Face-to-face -face support groups, success stories, having it facilitated by somebody who understands the medication or has been to the other side of it or is still actively on it. I mean, I can't stress the significance of having somebody I knew or watching people like me get well, overcome their illness and change their lives and how that motivated me to do the single most difficult thing I've ever done in my life. Yeah, yeah. Right? That's peer support. Peer support is what helped me overcome a life-threatening illness and helped me do the most difficult thing I've ever done in my life, which was to get well, chase abstinence, and achieve it. Now here I am. If it was not for that support, if I couldn't look around the room and see so many other people who had successfully done it, I probably wouldn't have done it for myself, and I'd be dead right now. I just worry about you know anybody feeling ashamed that they needed that, you know, like with back to mental health. I mean, it's not a big deal anymore to say you're on, a, you know, an antidepressant or an anti-anxiety medication. It's just not a big deal anymore where it used to be. It used to be a huge shameful thing, even for something small, you know, even the lesser of, the, of those psychiatric medications. So, and I think it, it's allowed more people to go for help. You know, it's not, it's, um, like you talk to older people and the shame involved in needing any kind of therapy or any kind of psychiatric medications is huge Right. where it's not like, like it's that a weakness. Right. 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 And I just worry that, you know, that we don't want people to feel ashamed of needing help until they don't need help anymore. Mm -hmm. Or if they, they, if for some reason they need help permanently, they need help permanently. I'd certainly rather somebody be here than, mm -hmm. um, than, you know, if, if they're not able to do that. Well, it's kind of like done. the it's kind of like the flu, right? I mean, 
It's definitely much more life-threatening. Actually, no, the flu kills a lot of people too. Not <laughs> uh, this so many people, but yes. Maybe, but, I mean, it's yeah. kind of like the flu in the sense that, you know, you have, you know, you don't have sneeze. You don't have puke. You don't have upset stomach. You have the flu. And you have a bunch of symptoms that helps you understand that you have the flu, right? You have all these symptoms. And so, you know, the treatment is, is that you could get, you could get, rid of the symptoms by taking Dayquil or NyQuil or some other medication. We're not sponsored by them, so it doesn't matter <laughs> unless they want to sponsor us. Which cool. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> you know, so you can take Dayquil um, or you can take some other medication to get rid of the symptoms, but you can't get rid of the flu by taking that medication. So you can have a version of life where you don't experience the symptoms daily of the flu. You can take the Dayquil, you can take some Theraflu, whatever it is, and you can get up and go do your day, right? Mm -hmm. You can fight through the day. And that may be an acceptable quality of life for you, right? But what if the flu could be treated? What would you do then? You know, would you put in the work? Or would a symptom-free life be good enough for you, knowing that if you stop taking the medication, your symptoms will come back, right? And I guess that's, that's the battle that I had in my head was that I knew that I was on Suboxone for two years. And it was really, really good during the time. I didn't try to abuse it. I was working closely with my doctor. I mean, I was still kind of sick in the way I used it, but mm -hmm. I had a somewhat symptom-free existence on the medication. I wasn't running the streets. I started a company. I was, had my kids back in my life. There was a lot of things that happened that were good in the same way that if I took DayQuil, I could kind of go function, but I was still hobbled a little bit. I was still handicapped by the medication. I was still not quite right on the inside, and I wasn't fully recovering. Right. And so that illness underneath was actually treatable and or at least for me. And I went and treated that. Thing. Yeah. And I think that's important because I mean, not everybody is as strong minded as you are. I and understand that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you are, you are one of the most intense and focused and strong minded person. I'm sure you were like, a, like a horror show of an addict because Terrible. <laughs> Terrible. I was just like this, except on drugs and more desperate. See, and I know you because you're my, you're my daughter. That's mm -hmm. how she is. She's just, and that's how I am too. Thank God I don't have an addiction. But um, just this is going to happen and I'm going to make it happen. And there's, and I think that that's a, a, a fantastic quality unless it's working in the, um, you know, working against you. But right. when you start to make it work for you, but that's not, not everybody, you know? No. So, um, I mean, so I think there's, there's a place for all of this. There's a middle ground. There's a middle ground in the language. There's, there's a place where, you know, maybe we can stop exactly. overcorrecting because yes, right. I, I got well this way and I shouldn't feel uncomfortable or ashamed to talk openly in public about it and use the words that helped me get well to try to inspire other people to get well. Mm -hmm. And in the same time, in that same vein, I think that other people should, should be able to use their language, but I don't feel like we should water it down and make it a universal language because it's not the one that helped me get well. It's not, right. and, and I don't want to change it. Not for me. You no, know, I just I, I just want to be careful. You know, we've talked about this before. I want to be careful around the medical community. I want to be careful about the decision makers. And right. I want to be careful about not saying things and calling people things that are not meant to, only meant to hurt them. So like when we had Amy Dresner on and we were talking about, you know, the <laughs> words like junkie and stuff. Yeah. You know, and that I think Amy and I talked about the fact that that's our word. Like th those are our words, like addict and junkie and stuff like that. We can use those, but you shouldn't. The medical community shouldn't. You know what I mean? Nurses and doctors shouldn't. 
And, you know, they probably do under their breath. They probably do when they're not around. They probably say it in their head, even if they don't say it out loud, because they're, they're sick of seeing the same people over and over again. They believe that, you know, some of the old school thought that this just is a moral failing, like these, you know, they're never going to get well, they're hopeless, you know, how many times are we gonna have to see this person? And, you know, I know that's, that's probably hard for them too. You know, I doubt they're just mean people, <laughs> you know, I'm yeah. sure it's just really hard for them to stay. Well, it's compassion fatigue to a of certain extent. Yeah. 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 And I'm sure it's but, hard to see the same person over and over again for the same illness. Let's say it was still, something else. It's still not okay. But let's and say I, it was something else. Let's say it was a broken leg and it was an addiction, right? And you, they come in with a broken leg and, and, and they're advised on how to go home and heal that broken leg, but they keep coming in because they're kicking stuff with that leg. I mean, there's a certain point where they're going to get frustrated, no matter who you are, no matter what the illness is. And I think that is maybe there's a training there. Maybe there's something that, like you said, definitely a training fatigue, in there. Yeah. Um, you know, where these yeah. nurses and physicians and stuff like that could get a little bit of, I hate to call it sensitivity training, because I don't want to imply that they're not sensitive. But, you know, I know that police officers have had to do it in the past that they're just because they're in the medical community doesn't mean that they're capable of addressing this particular part of that illness. You well, know. this is this is this is different than anything we've ever experienced before, too. So it's not, you know, even if you if you have an understanding of it, if you're, mm. I, you know, if this is all day every day, it would be very hard, and it is right. very hard. You know, mm. you deal with it, and I do too. And sometimes it is the same person over and over again. But no, I mean, I get that too. I, I have families that I've been working with for years, and uh, you know, their their loved one will come come back, they'll relapse, they'll struggle, they'll go to treatment, they'll get kicked out, they'll run away. Some of them survive, some of them don't. And I guess the real hard part is, you know, staying, staying compassionate and staying available and staying connected. And, you know, we don't tell families to turn their backs. We don't tell them to use tough love, which is, I don't even hate that phrase because mm, it doesn't so actually, it doesn't embody any of what we do as professionals when we help families set healthy boundaries. And people throw that word around like, oh, we don't use the tough love technique. And, you know, or they're using the tough love technique. We're just helping families defend themselves against something that's tearing families apart. You know, we're giving them a healthy way to get close to somebody that can really hurt them. Like, you know, the old, uh, how do you, how do you hug a porcupine? How do you love a porcupine? Um, you know, they're pretty dangerous to hug. So it's like, you've got this person and, you know, maybe, maybe the language change of like substance use disorder is more palatable for families, um, you know, because they don't see their loved one as an addict or a, a junkie or whatever other phrase they might hear from somebody else. And so it makes it easier for them to stay close to it, but it's still dangerous. Like, I don't care what you call it. You can call it addiction. You can call it substance use disorder, opioid use disorder. You can call it the fluffy bunny illness. You know what I mean? You can call it whatever you want. Cupcakes. It doesn't matter. It's killing people. It's dangerous. And it doesn't change the illness, no matter what we call it. It doesn't make it less dangerous. It doesn't make it more dangerous. And, you know, for us that are in the field working with families, I don't, I'm just getting confused about what to call it. It doesn't change how I help the family. No, <laughs> like but I, still, I, you know, something I think that the being a little, being careful with the language prevents people, prevents people being able to be, it's people from being thrown away. So, so what's wrong with the words addiction and addict? I don't have any problem with the word addiction. But I, I don't love what addict. But what about diabetic? Does diabetic bother you? You wouldn't um, refer to somebody as a diabetic. Absolutely, you would. You would. My, brother's, my brother's a diabetic. I would never call somebody a diabetic. I would call somebody a person with a di with diabetes. 
I really would. I mean, and that, that's not a stretch for me. That's what I would do because there, you, I never would call anybody by what I wouldn't call somebody who has cancer, the, the cancer. Well, he's not diabetes. He has right. diabetes. So he's diabetic. It's just, that's part of his thing. Like he is diabetic. Why, why would we change that? No, I get what I do understand what you're saying. I just, I, I, it, he has person- diabetes. You can have an addiction. He is diabetic. You can be an addict. Like, I don't see the stretch there. I don't know why that's so unpalatable for people. Um, because I think in the medical in the medical community and in the places where people can get help, where mm-hmm. people can get jobs, where people can get housing, mm-hmm. it causes it has this negative connotation that makes um, makes it so that a person with a substance use disorder who suffers from an addiction is, is either thrown away, mm. not take just brushed off. Like they're not going to be here much longer anyhow. So that's or, where the language um, needs to change. Right. What's that's, that? where the, that's where the language needs to change. Is at the, at the physician level, at the hospital level, at the professional level, at the nursing level. But I don't know that it needs to change out here. Well, I mean, if you're hearing it all the time, it's hard to change it in there if you're, if you're hearing it all the time. So if you're all the time calling yourself a junkie, then it just, you know, people may say it just to be politically correct, but they're really mm-hmm. going to be thinking they call themselves that. I mean, there's other, there's other groups that call themselves very negative names to, in my mind. And if they want to call themselves that, then they can call themselves that, sure. but they're not doing themselves any favors either because right. they're just, they're, they're, they're just allowing society in general to mm. marginalize them. Right. I don't and that's disagree. The, and that's the truth. You know what I mean? And I don't want that to happen. I want everybody to have an opportunity to come out of this mm-hmm. and not be known as that junkie. Right. Which, well, like I told you, I will rip your tongue out of you. <laughs> if you call anybody, I love that. Some, some people take pride <laughs> in it. You know, I mean, we, we, we go through no, a pretty I get significant that. battle. You know what I mean? Like, yes, I lived like an addict. It, I wasn't just uh, experiencing a substance use disorder. I lived like an addict. I lived like an animal, like a feral human being. Okay. That's yeah. not a substance use disorder. That's insanity. Yeah. I lived in chaos. I was desperate. I was dangerous. I was a completely different person than I am today. That wasn't a substance use disorder. Even without substances, I was crazy and dangerous. Yeah. You know? And so my journey of recovery was about recovering from that entire way of life not just my substance use. So that's why I, I'm, I really hesitate to call it a substance use disorder because it's so much more than that, right? I know. Maybe yeah. we just need to find something else. I'm, I'm cool with calling it something else. Just got to find something that actually embodies the whole illness and not just the medical side of it. It's interesting. I mean, I think that this is what we'll do for a while. We'll go too far that way and too far this way and eventually we'll come somewhere in the middle, I hope. You know, or, to- or we'll flip the car. You know, just keep spinning the wheel and flip the car. <laughs> Or put you, yeah, no, seriously, but that that may be it too. Is that we're putting too much attention on tiptoeing and and making worrying about what we're saying, not enough attention on on doing something. Right. You know, I, I something really interesting happened this weekend. I was um, I have to write the afterword for the book for oh, yeah. for my book because it's coming out in paperback, and I um, I in doing that, everybody always asks me how Katie is, you know, and um, I always get to, I'm, you know, me, I'm so proud. Give me the chance to talk about her and I'll talk about her <laughs> for two hours. Yeah. So, I mean, I could write the whole afterward about how fantastic she is. Um, but people also like will find a character in the book that mm-hmm. you haven't read. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And um, <laughs> was that a quick dig right there? <laughs> it was, it was. <laughs> um, it'll, they'll find a character in the book and then they'll say, um, whatever happened to Gabe Wright or whatever happened to Susanna? And um, so I decided that I would also update everybody on, in the paperback version about what happened to all these people. Interesting. Not only that, because I keep in touch with them. Some okay. of them more, like more often than others, but I reached out to them all mm-hmm. to, to see where they were if, or, or, or if they had anything they wanted me to include in the book because they've all read the book now. Mm. Which and, I'm going to have to do this week- weekend now because I've just been shamed into it. So <laughs> exactly <laughs> publicly, <laughs> but um, it was really interesting because they're all still alive. Which is huge. That's a big deal. And I wrote this. I mean, you know, I finished this book years ago now, mm-hmm. and and with no no idea of what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you that you know that in, in some and a couple of them have really struggled, but the plus was that they were supported, you mm-hmm. know, that there was none of, and, and granted they could have gone back and, and, and overdosed and, mm-hmm. and that would have been the end of the story, but that's not what happened. So right. my worry is that when we start lumping everybody together, we, we, we create this broad brush we paint everybody with and we say, we're, they're going to be dead anyhow. Mm-hmm. They're junkies. They're right. useless. They're not ever going to be get well, but that's what worries me about, um, <clears throat> the relapsing brain disease thing, you know, the, the, you know, we're telling people it's, you're going to relapse and you're never going to get well. Mm. And that is dangerous because that's not true because not everybody relapses mm-hmm. and, and lots of people stop relapsing even when they do and they do get well and Absolutely. recover. And we have to start talking about the fact that recovery is possible instead of fighting people, over what to say, right? People do recover. Yes. Some people don't survive, but people do recover. I mean, my business partner, John, just celebrated 10 years on Sunday. That's huge. Awesome. You know That's what awesome. I mean? He's got more sobriety than I do. I'm jealous. I'm trying to catch up. <laughs> you know, but <laughs> it, it, you know, 10 years, that, that's a big deal. That, and he's only 32, which means that he has now been sober for longer than he used. It's awesome. That is awesome. You know, and I guess that's, that's the stuff. Like a lot of the success stories that are out there, unfortunately – are based around abstinence. I, I am absolutely open to and would love to see and hear more people speak out about their medication recovery right, or treatment or whatever it is. Like, No, it, I think it's, it's important okay. that that happens. Be proud of it, speak openly about it, start groups, get motivated, do what, we, do what we're doing around it. Like I'm really proud of my abstinence-based recovery and I'm not going to stop talking about it. And if you're proud of your... Uh, medication assisted recovery, be proud of it. Talk about it openly, tell other people it's okay, like we are doing with mental health. You know what I mean? The more people that talk about it, the more comfortable we get. Celebrities start talking about it, people start talking about it. That needs to happen here. Right. And so I'm not even like anti MAT, which is what a lot of people think I am. I was on it myself. I wouldn't be alive if it wasn't for it. However, I chose abstinence. And it was I'm really part, it was part of, of your journey. It was not the end. Yeah, exactly. at the end of the journey. Yeah. I, I was not able to accept that as, as good as it gets. I wanted more for myself, and so I fought to get it. That's my journey. But what I'm saying is, is that if that was as good as it got for me, and it made me okay, and I was comfortable with that version of recovery, then I need to start talking about it. I need to help other people get okay with it. And I just fear that that's not happening right now. You know, and I'm not going to stop talking about my absence based recovery and be proud of it. So these other people are going to need to speak up. (laughs) 
I wish we could get somebody on here that wasn't afraid to talk about that. Somebody who was in the public eye that mm. wasn't afraid to talk about the fact that they, um, they're in recovery that way. You know, maybe somebody that's like an agent of change, somebody that's out there with a big voice that if they were to come to the table and say, you know, my version of recovery includes X, Y, and Z. Wouldn't that be that, awesome? That would be awesome. I think that's what we need. And again, I can't stress enough that I know there's a lot of people out there that know me and they hear the way I talk about this and they probably read my book and they might feel that because of my version of recovery that I'm opposed to other versions. I'm not. No, I know you're not. And if you can get well using whatever you use, I don't care if you use pizza. If pizza gets you well, do it. Just talk about it. Tell other people it can be done. Just don't tell me a story about how you used heroin, you know, uh, uh, you chose a heroin assisted life or whatever, whatever that article was where it's just okay to shoot, you know, $10 of dope a day. And that's just, you know, that's considered recovery. Cause I won't, I can't swallow that one. I have a hard time with that too. Yeah, I do. I'm open to a lot of things, but you can't, you can't tell me you're doing drugs actively and that you're in recovery. Cause that one just doesn't work for me, but I don't know. Who am I, right? Well, it scares me. I mean, it's not like I'm, I, I, I'm condemning her or, you know, but I just, it scares me because I don't think that that is a very safe way to. Well, I feel like if her goal was to get off of it, like I'm using it right now and I'm going to treatment to help. And eventually my goal is to get off of it. That, that might be, I could see that as being from her perspective, considered recovery. But if the statement is, I've just decided that this is the way things are and I budgeted in for the rest of my life and I have no plans of coming off of it. That's not recovery. That's active use. Right. Do you know what I mean? That's like smoking a pack of cigarettes a day and being like, you know, but I'm in recovery from cigarettes. I'm, I, you know, I'm good. No, you're not. You're actively smoking cigarettes. You can't tell me that you're in recovery from cigarettes unless you're cutting back or unless you have a plan to eventually not be smoking cigarettes. You can use patches. You can use gums. You can use lozenges. You can use whatever you want. Mm -hmm. Do a push up when you want to smoke. Go take a walk. But your recovery has to have a plan. A wellness plan, like in the recovery coaching here in Massachusetts, you know, I have to have a wellness plan. There's got to be some plan of action, yeah. you know, and I just feel like that article was so dangerous because it didn't have a plan of action to get well from it. It was just that she settled on the fact that heroin made her feel better than any other version of treatment. So heroin it is. And she's considering herself in recovery. Just not palatable for me and dangerous. dangerous. <laughs> I think I've already said that a couple of times, but yeah. I'm going to reinforce yeah. it. So. <laughs> Yeah, I'm okay yeah well, this should start things out. It should. And you know what? I love it if our listeners, you know, if you're, if you're listening to this now, if you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, uh, if you can hop on and leave a comment, you know what I mean? These are some pretty significant topics that we're talking about. And if you feel like you want to say something about it, you'll be heard. We'll read your comments. Uh, we'll bring them to the table. And, you know, Maureen, I know you and I talk in the background. This isn't the only time we talk, but we talk in the background. And a lot of those comments and a lot of those topics will come to the table. So. If you have something or if you feel some kind of way about what we're saying, tell us about it. Yeah, definitely. We're happy to respond, right? Definitely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's good to have a little conversation around these things. <laughs> Absolutely. And if you listen to your car, pay attention to the road. <laughs> all right. I would like to thank all of our listeners for joining us today on this episode of Collateral Damage. As always, if you'd like to find out all of the different ways that you can listen to and subscribe to our podcast, you can visit our website, which is www.cdpodcast.com. There are many different ways to listen, download, and subscribe, so we encourage you to choose the one that is most appropriate for you. And as always, we would encourage our listeners to get informed and stay connected. Thank you for joining us.